0: A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to return to my alma mater, the United States Military Academy at West Point, New York. And you might ask, well, what was the purpose of your trip? And I would have to be honest with you and say, well, it was my 40th class reunion. And then you would properly conclude, my gosh, the Deacon sure is old. <laughs> but it was a really cool experience for me to go back to West Point. it been a long time. And it dawned on me that when I saw my classmates, these guys, even though I hadn't seen them in a long time, were very near and dear to my heart. Always have been, always will be. I feel this amazing bond with them and love for them, not because of their great accomplishments in the past 40 years, but what we went through as 18 year olds some 40 plus years ago. Now, don't get me wrong, these are accomplished men. Some are one-star generals, two-star generals, a couple of three-star generals. Some guys did just their minimum five years of service and did other things, renowned surgeons, elected officials, and at least one billionaire. But during the reunion, we didn't talk about these accomplishments. Instead, we wanted to talk about our plebe year at West Point. Plebe year is the first year at the academy. The term plebe comes from the longer term plebeian, which in the Roman army days was the commoner, the lowest rank you could possibly have in the army. So when you're a plebe at West Point, you kind of get the status that we didn't have. I would like to give you just a snippet of what life was like as a plebe at West Point. Academics, obviously, were the number one priority. But you had to keep your room in impeccable order because you would be inspected when you were at class. The room would be inspected. You had to polish your shoes. You had to shine your brass. You had to have your hair cut properly. And you had to memorize a whole bunch of trivia. And then, of course, you had various duties that you had to do. Maybe you were the mail carrier. Maybe you were the cold beverage corporal at the meals. And my favorite was the minute caller. If you were the minute caller, you would dress early in the morning and you'd stand out in the hallway at attention with your eyes fixed on the clock. And every minute you would say, sir, there are 10 minutes until morning formation. The uniform of the day is cadet gray with overcoat. 10 minutes, sir. And you do that at nine minutes, eight minutes, seven minutes. As it got closer to formation time, the upperclassmen would come out of their rooms and surely they would encounter you. So this one upperclassman comes up and stands behind you. And he said, hey, Beanball, what's my name? Now you memorized the names of the upperclassmen, but you didn't memorize their voices. And so the sweat's starting to pour down your back of your neck and you're like, oh my gosh. So you say, sir, you're Mr. Barnes. And he steps around in front of you, about an inch from your nose, and he says, Smackhead, do I look like Mr. Barnes? No, sir, you're Mr. Williams, you quick, quickly correct yourself. And then he continues to stay in your face, and you draw your neck in a little bit closer, farther back and farther back, and he said, Start the days. So you say, sir, the days, there are 34 days until Army beats Navy in football. There are 56 days until the Corps of Cadets goes on Christmas. There's 157 days till ring weekend for the class of 1975, et cetera. Eventually, he gets bored, and he leaves you alone. You finish up your minute calling. You go back into the privacy of your room, and your roommate is standing there. His face is white, and he goes, are you OK? And you go, yeah, I think so and then together you go out to formation, knowing full well that you're gonna be hazed out in formation and hazed at the table. And that's life as a plebe. For one whole year, we were running scared. We knew that at any moment, an upperclassman could come and flame on us, and they did. But together we persevered, and together we survived. And to this day, it doesn't really matter what a man's title is, or what they accomplished in the last 40 years. What really matters is that we are a band of brothers who suffered together way back when. Now hold that thought for a second and let's talk about the gospel. If you read the gospel today before mass, which I hope you will do all the time, You were a mere two verses into the readings and you said, hmm, something fishy's going on here. The Pharisees and the Herodians appeared to be on the same team. They appeared to be friends, but nothing could be farther from the truth. You see, the Pharisees are religious patriots who are violently opposed to the Roman rule and the heavy tax burden that they put on their fellow Jews whereas those who were followers of King Herod tend to be more sympathetic to the Roman rulers and the tax. So the only way these two diverse groups could possibly come together and be allies is for the purpose of bringing Jesus the Messiah down. Now Jesus, in his great wisdom... He sees the falseness of their adultery and their comments and he knows that this is a trap and when they ask the question is it lawful to pay the census tax to Caesar or not he knows that this yes or no question leads to a lose-lose scenario if he says yes we should pay the tax to Caesar he will be viewed as a supporter of the Roman ruler and lose many of his followers. If he says, no, we should not pay the tax to the Roman authorities, these friends of King Herod will surely report him to the authorities for instigating a tax revolt. No, instead what Jesus does is he says, show me the coin. Now this silver coin is called a denarius. It's stamped with the side view of Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor from 14 A.D. to 37 A.D. And accompanied on that coin is an inscription that hails him as the son of the divine Augustus. On the other side of the coin, he's declared high priest, Now, it's pretty easy to figure out that no pious Jew should be carrying a coin like that. But someone produced one. So here's the punchline of it all. After examining the coin, Jesus says, Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So what are the things that are Caesar's? Well, certainly this and all the denarius, the Roman coins, are his. Certainly obedience to just laws are his. But there's also some things in that time frame and in today's time frame that also belong to Caesar, that belong to the world. Honor, excessive need of honor. Power, desire for power. Pleasure and wealth. St. Thomas said that these four things are the great substitutes for God, and we all get caught up in it. So if those are the things for Caesar and of this world, what are the things of God? Well, the answer lies in the first chapter of Genesis. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image after our likeness. It is the human person who bears the image of the living God. You and me, we belong to God. So our highest obligation in this life is to give ourselves and each other back to our maker. Another way of saying it is this. Give what you have back to the world from which it came. But give what you are Back to God. Now, my recent experience at West Point shows that the deep brotherly love that I have for these men is based upon who they are and that we suffered together. It has nothing to do with what we have or what we accomplished. At West Point, the hazing during plebe year is nothing but a game. It's supposed to test your mettle for a future battlefield to make sure that you have the strength for that situation. And it's good in that regard. But you and I here, prisoners at Our Lady of Lords, we don't need the long gray line to feel community. We have something that's far sweeter, far richer, far better than that. For we are a community of the children of God. You and I, as children of God, are on a similar journey. We're pilgrims, if you will, on a pilgrimage. And this journey is called life. And we are engaged in a spiritual battle on this earth as we work our way to heaven. Make no mistake, our mettle. Our spiritual metal is being tested every day. So here's my very practical advice to you today. Two things. First, when you leave mass at the end of mass today, when you leave church, do something different than what you normally do. Normally you walk out with family or friends and you visit. But today we ask you to look around and see who's in the pew behind me, in front of me, next to me who I don't know. Grab that person by the arm and walk out of church with them today. Ask them their name. Ask them what they do. And then finally, ask them how you can pray for them. Every one of us is carrying a cross and some days that cross is heavier than others. And that person may not wanna share the full story of their cross with you. But they'll tell you enough so that you can pray for them. Second, now that you have asked them, what can I pray for you for? You must pray for them. You can't just forget it. And so Father Brian and I ask that you pray every day. Make it a habit. Pray for the grace to return your likeness back to God by eliminating sin from your life. Pray for the strength to love your fellow man and to lift him up to God so that his cross won't feel quite so heavy. And then lastly, pray for me, pray for you, pray for everyone's souls so that these souls may be worthy and perfect gifts to give back to God what is God's.